Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Patty Bray, and it is a joy to be here with you this morning. Spend a few minutes sharing with you. I have to admit that I planned on coming out and doing some kind of engaging with you telling some funny stories that would kind of tear down the walls a little bit, and so that by the time the message came, you were really into listening to the message. And then I timed the message, and I had to cut out every single funny thing because I didn't have enough time for it. So what I want you to do is I want you to imagine that you have just laughed your head off and you have gotten so engaged that you're ready now to hear this sermon because that's what we're going to have to do. We're going to jump right into this message on following the will of God. During Summit, Sean Cawson did an amazing job engaging about this topic. I love the word picture that he painted where he talked about the will of God being like a channel, not like a tight wire, but like a channel where there are boundaries and borders, but within which there's a lot of latitude and a lot of freedom. And that week, a lot of you said that it is just the desire of your heart to remain firmly rooted in that channel of God's will. But I have a question for you today. What if, while walking in the channel... God asks you to do something that looks foolish in the eyes of the world. Because you see, I really believe that that's what happens to most Christians periodically in their faith journey if they really are listening, if they really want to walk by faith, if they really long to make a difference for God and for eternity. I've heard some of you talk about examples of where God has done that very thing in stepping into your life and asking you to do something that just sounds downright foolish in the eyes of the world. Some of you have told me stories about like having to change your major in your junior or senior year. It just didn't make sense. In fact, it really seemed quite foolish, but you couldn't escape this call of God on your life. Some of you have told me how you have stood strong against pornography when TV and movie and everything else tells you that it's okay. Some of you have talked to me about refusing to party when you go home on the weekends, even though your friends are putting extreme pressure on you. And on and on the list could go. All the kinds of ways that the world tells us that one way is the way to live but God's call comes to us and asks us to, do, to live in a way that seems foolish. Well, today, today I want to share with you two stories of people who had to face this very issue of being foolish in the eyes of the world and following the call of God or not. One is a story from the Bible, and the second one is something in my own life. And then at the end, hopefully, we'll tie it all together. So the first story from the Bible comes from the Old Testament, which shouldn't surprise any of you who really know me because I'm teaching Old Testament survey this, this uh, fall, and I'm immersed in the Old Testament. So I want to talk to you about the story of Abraham. Abraham was a man who lived in a world that believed in many gods. And into that world, he was called by the one true God to start walking in the channel of God's will. And like all of us, Abraham had to make the decision over and over again whether or not he really would remain in that channel. And at times, he did really well with this. But at times, he let his fears or his impatience 
take him off track and he went outside that channel and then he would get back on into the channel. Well, then one day, Abraham received this significant word from God and we read about it in Genesis 15 when it says, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, a son from your own body will be your heir. You're going to have a baby, Abraham. Now, this would have been extremely foolish in the eyes of the world for two reasons. One, Abraham's 75 years old when he gets this promise. Now, think about it. It's um, Thanksgiving time, and you go home, and the family's all together, and Grandma and Grandpa are sitting there at the dining room table, and they say, um, guys, we have some news for you. We're going to have a baby. You go, oh, no, that is the most foolish thing I have ever heard in my life. That's Abraham's life. 75 years old when he gets this promise. The second problem was that his wife, Sarah, was barren. She couldn't have children. So from a human perspective, this promise of a baby is a foolish promise from God. But eventually, 25 years later, at the ripe old age of 100, God's promise comes true, and this precious baby is born to him. Think about how much he must have loved that baby. I've got my child. God's come through for me. All of the foolishness now is behind me, except not quite. There's more to this story when God asks Abraham to, some, to do something that is probably the epitome of absolute foolishness in the eyes of the world. This request comes in Genesis chapter 22. Watch your screens and let's look at this story. Sometime later... God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yeah, yes, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. I mean, it doesn't make sense, guys. It is a foolish request from Yahweh. So what's he going to do? He makes a decision that had to be the hardest one of his life. Look at the next verse. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for the fire for a burnt offering, and he set out for the place God had told him about. So here he is on this journey where he's been learning how to live in the channel of God's will, and he's learned something over the years about trusting in God so that he wouldn't veer off that channel, out of that channel. He's learned about trusting God even when the request seems foolish. Next verse. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Um, stay here with the donkeys, Abraham said to the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We'll worship there, and, and we'll, we'll come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, uh, we have the fire and the wood, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? Do you wonder if, Ab if Isaac is getting a little bit suspicious about things about now? Uh, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an, author, an altar, and he arranged the wood on it. And then he tied his son Isaac 
and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, yeah, yes, here, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You've not withheld from me even your son, your only son. So Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. He took the ram and he sacrificed it on the burnt offering in place of his son. And he named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. It seems like a foolish story, a foolish request, and a foolish response from a dad who'd waited a hundred years for his beloved son. But in this story of seeming foolishness on all counts, I'm convinced that we get some lessons for every believer about remaining in the channel of God's will. Listen, my friends, there will be times in your life and in my life when we'll have to decide if we are going to place absolute trust in God or not. There will be times when we'll be asked to trust God when it doesn't make any sense. And there'll be times when we'll be asked to place something or someone that we love on the altar of surrender. Abraham passed the test. The question for us today is, will you and will I? One story. Now, let's take that story and just set it aside for a couple of minutes. We'll come back to it. But I want to tell you a second story, and it happens to be my story. I'm from an area of the country called the Quad Cities. It's where John and I pastored for more than 40 years. A number of years ago, I had something happen to me that had never happened to me in my entire life. One night, I was visiting someone in the hospital in Davenport, Iowa, and as I was headed home, I turned onto this street, 4th Street in Davenport. 4th Street is known for being a bad part of town. Bars drug houses, strip clubs. I'd seldom driven on this street before. But that night, as I turned onto 4th Street, I saw some of the women of the streets, some of the prostitutes. And the strangest thing happened to me. I burst out sobbing over these women. I just started crying out, who's going to help these women come to know Jesus? It was the strangest thing that I had ever experienced in my life. Well, I took the same trip for the next three or four nights, and as I turned onto 4th Street every single night, the same thing happened to me. I just began sobbing over these women. Over the next few days, the Lord continued to place this amazing burden on me until I felt like he was asking me if I would try to do something to reach the women of the streets. I truly thought that it was the most foolish request that God had ever asked anyone in the history of the world. I would say things to him like, God, this is Patty Bray that you're talking to. I'm a middle-class white woman. I have never had a cigarette in my life. I've never tasted alcohol in my life, and I was a virgin when I got married. God, surely you have gotten me mixed with someone else when it comes to working with prostitutes and drug addicts and strippers. And the call wouldn't go away. 
I felt like God was asking me to walk up and down the streets and invite the women to a Bible study. It seemed like I was supposed to start at Sugars. Sugars was the most well-known strip club in the area. And I felt like God was saying that he wanted me to go in and invite these women to a Bible study. I will never forget the day that I sat outside Sugars trembling and praying and sobbing. It was like I was hyperventilating. I was going, God, I cannot go in there. I cannot do it. I'll look like a fool. I'll look like a fool. I'll look like a fool over and over. And then it just felt like deep in my heart and mind that, the God, that God responded this way. Patty, will you love me so much that you'll do whatever I ask? Even if you look foolish, will you be a fool for me? And my cries turned from, I'll look like a fool, I'll look like a fool, to I'll be a fool for you. I'll be a fool for you. I'll be a fool for you. I will obey. I will be faithful. So I went into Sugars. And I met the woman in charge. And I said, Pauline, I'm going to ask you something that you have probably never been asked before. She said, honey, I've been asked everything. I said, I kind of doubt this one. I said, Pauline, I feel like I'm supposed to start a Bible study for the women of the streets of Davenport. She said, well, honey, that's a great idea. They really need it. I was like, whoa, I didn't expect that answer. And so I said, um, okay, then would you consider letting me have a room here? Let me rent a room for the Bible study. And she said, honey, all of my rooms are taken. So I said, oh, okay. She said, but I will let you ask my girls to come. Well, I left there and asked a dear friend of mine named Peggy if she would join me in this ministry. Peggy was a former drug addict who had been miraculously redeemed from her past. And together we began going week after week into places like Sugars and the bars and the drug houses and the Triple X Theater. Although I have to admit, I only went to that one once. That one was really, really hard. And we passed out flyers and we invited women to join us. Though they were friendly to our faces, I'm not sure what they said when we left, I often felt foolish. Week after week, we would walk those streets, we would pass out our flyers, we would talk to the people for a bit, and then when no one would come, we would get on our knees at that little room that we had taken at the Salvation Army, and we would ask God to give us boldness, and we'd pray for the women of the streets of Davenport. And over and over and over again, we had to lay it on the altar over and over. I'll come back to that story in just a minute. Two really different stories, aren't they? But both perhaps bring us to this question. Why does God sometimes ask us to choose to do what looks like foolishness in the eyes of the world in order to remain in the channel of his will? I am convinced that it goes back to what Sean talked about during Summit. It's all about the heart. From cover to cover, this Bible reveals to us that the greatest need of our lives is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. That is the call of God on our lives. He wants to be the supreme ruler of our hearts. He wants us to love him supremely. 
I picture it like this. You know how in a country that would have a king, that king would have his royal throne. His throne. I picture it that our hearts have a throne. And it's where the king of kings longs to live. And he deserves to live there. He is so worthy. He is so great. He is so truly Lord that he alone has the right to live on the throne of our hearts. To place King Jesus on the throne means that we will love him more than we'll love anything else or anyone else. For him to reign supreme on the throne of our hearts means that everything else must be taken off of the throne of our hearts and laid at the altar of surrender. Why? Because everything that remains in our hearts, that sits on our throne, that we love more than Jesus, is the rival of him being on the throne, of him sitting on that throne. Rivals. Think about Abraham. Verse 1 said that God was testing Abraham. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love so much. God knew that Abraham had a potential rival that sat on the throne of his heart, and that rival had a name. It was Isaac. My favorite author, A.W. Tozer, says this about Abraham. I only wanted to remove him, Isaac, from the temple of your heart so that I might reign unchallenged there, that I might sit on your throne. So God asked Abraham if he would take Isaac and if he would lay, them, lay him on the altar to do something that was completely foolish in the eyes of the world. And in so doing, God was able to do one of the most amazing things that this world has ever seen done through Abraham and his descendants to bring into this world Jesus Christ. That's Abraham. What about Patty Bray? I really think that the request from God for me to be involved in that ministry was also about me laying down some rivals from my heart. My rivals were things like pride and ego, the desire to not look stupid in front of people, my love for comfort and security, my fear of what would happen to me. I had to lay them all down on the altar of surrender. I think about you. Many of you long to remain in the channel of God's will. You love Jesus. You signed that blank check on Monday. But listen, it won't always be easy for you to remain in the channel of his will, especially if he asks you to do something that seems foolish in the eyes of the world. And I think there will be three temptations that will fight against that happening in your life. One of those temptations will be people. It will be people. There will be times when people try to get you to veer off from that channel. And listen, it won't just be non-believers. Instead, there will at times be well-meaning people, even Christians, who will speak into your life and try to get you to veer off course. I wonder if that's why Abraham kept his servants at the bottom of the hill, at the bottom of the mountain, because he knew that they might love Isaac so much that they would want to change his mind. I think about that day that I sat outside of Sugars. I didn't tell you that I sat there with a good friend from my church. His name is Lloyd, and he happens to be a state cop. 
He heard what I was thinking of doing, and he insisted on joining me that first day outside of Sugars. He said, Patty, 4th Street is the most dangerous street in all of the Quad Cities. I'm just really worried about you going there. And I remember, you know, Lloyd loved me. Lloyd loves Jesus. Lloyd serves God in his job. But Lloyd was trying to get me to veer off the track of God's channel of his will for me. I remember saying to Lloyd, you know what? God's call is so heavy on my heart in this that I have to do it regardless of what happens. I just knew that I had to listen to the call of God more than to this well-meaning person. When you decide to serve God wholeheartedly without holding anything back, there will come times in your life when well-meaning people, even Christians, will try to speak into your life. But oh, for a generation of people at IWU who will lay themselves so much and every rival on the altar of surrender that they will do anything that God says for them to do. I wonder if God is waiting for us to get to that place before he brings revival. Another temptation that you will have is the desire for results. When you want to stay in the channel of God's will, sometimes you'll be tempted to measure the worthiness of your surrender by the results that happen. Abraham didn't know the results, did he? When he placed Isaac on that altar. In fact, the New Testament tells us that he just assumed that God was going to have to raise Isaac up from the dead. He only knew that he had to obey and allow God to take care of the results. Man, I had to face this too. Peggy and I did this ministry for one full year until the day that we just knew that God said, you're done. Do you know in that year how many people came to receive Christ as Savior? If Peggy and I had kept our eyes on the results, we would have said, this is too foolish. But as we would go into those businesses week after week, and then as we would kneel on that floor week after week with no one coming, we kept saying, God, we just have to be faithful to the call. You alone are responsible for the results. Now, some people might say that we just wasted those three hours every Thursday afternoon, that we were just foolish to spend so many hours doing something that resulted in so few visual results. But it wasn't about results in the eyes of the world. During that year, Peggy and I came to know Christ deeper and the power of his resurrection more than we had ever known before because we were totally, completely dependent on him. Plus, we came to know a level of surrender that I had never experienced up until that point. Listen, my friends, obedience is up to the believer. The results are always up to God. Oswald Sanders said it so well. I have nothing to do with what will happen if I obey. I must abandon myself to God's call in unconditional surrender and smilingly wash my hands of the consequences. Oh, for a generation of students at IWU who say, who will say, regardless of the results, I will do what God calls me to do. Is God waiting for that to happen to send revival to this campus? Temptation number three is our feelings. Often you will be tempted to give in to your feelings over faith. And that can easily veer you off course. I have to tell you that it's one of the things that concerns me most about today's Christians. This tendency, this tendency to settle for, to make our decisions 
and our actions based on our feelings rather than on faith. By what feels right or good or appropriate rather than by what the word of God says is right or good or appropriate. Do you think Abraham felt excited or joyous as he walked up that mountain, as he tied his beloved son to that altar? No, not a way in this world. Everything in him when it came to feelings had to be crying out, God, where are you? But he walked in obedience and faith and trust. What about Peggy and me? As we continued this ministry for the year, we seldom had any excited feelings. Other people tended to look at us and applaud us and tell us that this was really an exciting thing to do. And they were wrong. It was hard to walk into those buildings and know that we were looking foolish. We had no great emotional feelings, only this deep sense that we were walking by faith, the path that God had called us to walk. If we'd gone on feelings, we'd have given up the first week. Listen, my friends, your feelings are so untrustworthy. They can be affected by a headache or by depression or by low blood sugar or just a bad day. The child of God is called to walk by faith and not by feelings. I love feelings. I tend to be a feeling-driven person in some ways, too. I just refuse to base my life, my faith, on them. When we surrender our lives and we surrender our rivals as an act of the will, and then we follow that up day after day with our actions that are correct, and we do it year after year, and we do it irregardless of our feelings, God can do amazing things. And I wonder if God is waiting for the students of IWU to say, I will live by what is right, and then could he send revival? That brings us to the so what moment. So what's the Holy Spirit been saying to you today? As you came in, you got this little card that says, I'm laying down my rival, Lord. What's your rival? What sits on the throne of your heart? so that God really can't be the king of kings on your heart. What do you need to lay down? Your desire for fame, fortune, prestige, your fear of what people would say? Maybe for you the name of someone came up. What's God saying to you? What do you need to remove from the throne of your heart and put at the altar so God can do some things through you that you never dreamed possible. Listen, as someone who has walked with him, the king of kings, for a lifetime, I can tell you it is worth it. There is nothing better. And today, in just a little bit as we sing, I'm going to ask you to put on that card, what is your rival? And then because I just believe so much that there's something powerful about getting up and moving and, and actually taking a decisive action, we're going to take the front here as the altar and then all of the ledges all around you, right in front of you, so you don't have to come all the way down here, would you take your card, if you're really serious about this, and take it and lay it on the altar. Even whisper out loud, here, I'm laying it down, Lord. I'm laying it down. What's God saying to you? For some of you, you need to write your name on here. You need to give them yourself. You're not walking in the channel. You're not even saved. And today would be the day for you to put your name on this and say, God, here I am. Here I am. I'm yours. Let me pray for you. Holy Spirit, 
I really believe that you want to do some things here at IWU that we've never seen before, that you want to send revival. And I pray that you would work in our lives today and take us to a new place of surrender where we let you be the king of kings on the, Lord, on the, on the throne of our hearts as we lay down our, revival, our rivals on the altar. Would you work, Holy Spirit, in ways that no human being can? Would you speak deeply into the heart of every single person here? Would you bring us to a new place of surrender? I pray in your holy, precious name.